this last year of, of our church life at West Hills and then look ahead to, to 2020 and do some planning for the next year, uh, God willing. Of course, we know in his, man, uh, in his mind, man makes the plans, but God establishes our footsteps. But you know, we're praying and, and uh, asking that God would sort of give us a vision for the future and uh, just to keep in front of us as a church and as a reminder that part of that vision is uh, two services. We're adding a, a, a second service at nine o'clock uh, come January 1st. And so uh, we're really excited about that. I, I hope that God is preparing your heart and uh, getting you excited about that. Um, you know, whether that's selfishly so that you can get out uh, in time to, to beat the Methodist to lunch or whatever, or whether that's um, you know, because you have friends. I've heard from two or three, I know, just in the past uh, week or two now, since we announced, um, letting me know that they're so excited we're adding nine o'clock service, they can actually come back to church now because they have work at 11 o'clock on uh, Sunday mornings. And so um, I think it's going to be a really exciting thing for us uh, as a church. Um, just a reminder to also keep this in front of you. Uh, that means double the, the volunteers needed. Um, and I spun that positively for you, that that uh, serving God is a blessing. It's more blessed to give than to receive, to serve than to be served, uh, as Jesus says. And so uh, a lot more of y'all are going to have the opportunity to be blessed uh, starting January 1st. And so um, I'm going to be getting on the, the phone and calling. So we're going to ask you to literally answer the call uh, this coming week um, if you <clears throat> get an unexpected call from uh, Will Duvall on your cell phone, uh, you'll know what it's about, and you can only dodge me for so long. So um, we're going we're gonna to get y'all plugged in, and we're going to make this happen. It's going to be wonderful. So um, This morning, though, we're picking back up where we left off two weeks ago in our study through the Gospel of Mark together this year. Uh, we paused last week to commemorate Reformation Sunday, but the week prior, uh, we saw Jesus flipping over tables, cleansing the temple uh, in Jerusalem, and then cursing a fig tree in righteous judgment against the nation of Israel for its lack of fruitfulness. God's people were supposed to be a blessing to the nations. The temple was supposed to be a house of prayer for the nations, but instead they turned it into a den of robbers, and it was for that expression of condemnation against the very heart and the symbol of first century Judaism uh, that we're going to see in today's passages, the very same crowd that had been Jesus's fan club on Monday as he was riding into town chanting, Hosanna, Hosanna, now is beginning to turn against him in this morning's sermon, uh, such that by Friday of Holy Week, they'll be chanting, crucify him, crucify him. And so this morning, I've actually lumped seven uh, separate passages together for us, all unified around this really important, uh, really practical topic of how we handle criticism um, and hostility from others. We're going to, once again, deviate from a strict chronology through Mark, uh, because as we'll see, Jesus was constantly facing criticism throughout his entire ministry. And so we're going to back up all the way to chapter 6, and then we're going to trace this theme all the way uh, up through chapters 11 and 12, where we left off uh, two weeks ago, and see what principles and what practical application points that we can glean from Jesus' example of how to respond to criticism. Now, if that's the methodology here, then there's three quick points we need to make that are not in your bulletins there, right at the outset, each of which... Uh, caveats flows from one crucial recognition, and that recognition is that you and I are not Jesus. 
we're not Jesus. And because we're not Jesus, that means three things are different that we have to keep in mind when we're taking Jesus' example of how to respond to criticism and trying to apply it in our own lives. Number one, most importantly, uh, it means that unlike Jesus, we're going to fail to respond to criticism perfectly, and thus, just like any sermon that is heavy on practical tips, how-to application points for the faith, go out and live this in your lives this week, we need to bookend that message with the good news of the gospel, the reminder that you will fail at this daily. I will fail at all the seven things I'm about to tell you, you will fail at it this week when you are criticized. But the good news of the gospel is that we have an intercessor in Jesus who showed God the obedience that you and I fail to. Praise God that when I blow it, when I respond poorly to others' criticisms, well, not me, because I'm a pastor and I don't get criticized, but um, yeah, that's a joke. You should all be laughing. If you're not laughing, you're the one probably criticizing me. Uh, when we blow it, praise God that we have a Savior who never sinned, who was sinless, and yet willingly laid down his life for me in order to trade his righteousness for all of my unrighteousness. And... Yet, that doesn't excuse our sin. Right? We know Romans 6, uh, Paul says, what then shall we say? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may abound? By no means. We've died to sin, and so we don't use Christ's forgiveness as an excuse to ignore the way that he's called us to live and then just fly off the handle at people when they criticize us. We ought to actually learn this morning, as Christians of all people, we ought to be motivated to follow in our Lord's footsteps and learn to respond well to criticism. And if we're honest, probably for, for many of us, this might be one of the biggest areas of our lives that needs attention, that we struggle with most. Because when are we more prone to sin and to blow it than when, than when we feel attacked by someone, right? Many of us are pretty godly people until we get criticized, and then we lash back out. And so the second point that we need to remember this morning is that because we're not Jesus, because we're not perfect like him, we often deserve criticism. Jesus only ever received undeserved criticism because he was perfect. Destructive criticism. And yet, ironically, it's it's our sin in our hearts, the same sin that causes us to reject Jesus and to, and to crucify him. It's that same sin that causes us to naturally interpret and receive any and all criticism against us as destructive, as undeserved, as unjustified, when in fact it may be well-deserved and even helpful for us if we would humbly hear it. But in our sin, we want to believe that we're perfect, that we don't make mistakes, that merit critique, that I, that I don't need any further sanctification or edification. We get defensive. And so perhaps the most significant lesson that we need to learn about how to handle criticism is one that, unfortunately, we can't actually learn from Jesus and his perfect example, and that is that we ought to listen to criticism and learn from it. Jesus didn't need to listen and, and learn from it. He had nothing to learn. He was perfect. But we do. Proverbs 17.10 says, a rebuke goes deeper into a man of understanding than a hundred blows into a fool. That's a powerful image, isn't it? 
The sage, the, the Proverbs uh, writer here, doesn't specify whether the, re, whether the rebuke is constructive or destructive. He just says, if you're wise, you will listen deeply and f- try and find a grain of truth that you can learn from in any rebuke. And conversely, you can beat a fool to death and he won't change a bit. And Proverbs 9.8 says, reprove a wise man and he will love you. Proverbs 19.25, reprove a man of understanding and he will gain knowledge. Proverbs 15.32, whoever ignores instruction despises himself, but he he who listens to reproof gains intelligence. You don't do yourself any any favors by not hearing uh, constructive criticism. Proverbs 19.20, listen to advice and accept instruction that you may gain wisdom in the future. David goes so far in Psalm 141.5 as to invite criticism. David says, let a righteous man strike me. It is a kindness. Let him rebuke me. It is oil for my head. Let my head not refuse it. And so you and I ought similarly to invite criticism as a way of being further perfected and becoming further sanctified, like made like Christ, even when, even when that criticism isn't going to be always delivered perfectly. And the third and final quick caveat before we get to our seven uh, principles here is that because we're not like Jesus, discerning the difference between constructive and destructive criticism, and especially between the seven types of destructive criticism that we're about to see Jesus encounter, and how to respond to each accordingly with its own appropriate response in context is really, really tough. And Jesus was a master at handling criticism. And so we really do need to learn from his example today. Man, is it hard, right? My favorite proverb on the topic is chapter 26, verses 4 and 5. It says, answer not a fool according to his folly, lest you be like him yourself. Answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own eyes. The sage is essentially saying, if you engage with a fool's destructive criticism, he's just going to pull you down into the mud with him. And yet, if you don't engage him, he's going to think he's right and he'll go on foolishly, wrongfully criticizing everyone. And oftentimes that's how responding to criticism feels, isn't it? It's a lose-lose. It's like, I cannot win here. And yet, we're going to see from Jesus this morning, his example, that there is a right way. Uh, And it's appropriate, as long as our response to criticism is contextualized and appropriate based on the given specifics of the circumstances. And so, uh, Sometimes you need to answer the fool, sometimes you don't. And in all of this, therefore, there's got to be a lot of prayer and a lot of leaning on the Holy Spirit and the Lord's wisdom and guidance and how to navigate this really difficult topic of responding to criticism. And so with that in mind, uh, before we dive in, let's, let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask for his wisdom and his guidance this morning. Heavenly Father, uh, we are all uh, sinful. We, in our sin, just like the Pharisees and scribes and chief priests we're going to see this morning, we reject you. We 
do things our own way instead of we lean on our own understanding instead of trusting in you and your ways. Um, We return evil for evil when your word tells us uh, to love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us. And so, Father, would you um, illuminate the study of your word now through the power of your Holy Spirit as we seek to not only understand, uh, but actually begin to apply and actually begin to uh, change our, our attitude and our outlook and our perspectives on criticism, on confrontation, and how we encounter that. Uh, Father, we know that we can't do that on our own. Uh, we're not going to do this well on our own. It's going to take a uh, work of your Holy Spirit um, to transform our hearts and, and, and probably in every circumstance, in every context, uh, we're going to need to pause and pray and just lean on you for wisdom and guidance and how to, to best um, handle uh, reproof. Uh, we want to be the wise man from Proverbs. We want to be people who, who gain understanding and are further sanctified by criticism, whether it's constructive or destructive, to find a grain of truth that we can grow from. Help us to become wiser this morning, more like you in all your perfection. For your glory we pray. Amen. Uh, So response number one to criticism is to cut ties. That's what Jesus does in Mark chapter 6, verses 1 through 6. We hear Jesus went away from there and came to his hometown. And his disciples followed him, and on the Sabbath he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astonished, saying, where did this man get these things? What is this wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary and the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? Are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown, and among his relatives, and in his own household. And he could not do any mighty work there, except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief, and he went about among the villages teaching. Jesus had been healing and performing miracles all over Galilee and Judea for five chapters now, and he finally returns home to Nazareth, and his disciples, I think, have have got to be expecting the biggest welcome home party ever for Jesus. We're going to be treated like royalty here. And instead, what is the town's reaction? Verse 3, they took offense to him. They say, wait a minute, Jesus. You think you're going to teach us? Mary and Joseph's boy, who never attended a day of Torah school in his life? The carpenter's son? Little old Jesus? used to change your diapers, that Jesus? And how does Jesus respond to their rejection? Verse 6, he marveled at their unbelief, and he went about among other villages. He left. And we don't hear anything about him ever returning to Nazareth for the rest of Mark's gospel. He cut ties because Jesus knew that there are some relationships you simply cannot make work. See, a relationship is a two-way street. You can only be one side of that equation, friends. You cannot control anyone else's behavior. 
What you can decide is how you're going to treat them, and then if they continue to treat you poorly, continue to, to show you nothing but criticism, then you do get to decide at what point you're going to cut ties and end the relationship. At some point, that may be necessary, as hard as it is. And some of you this morning, no doubt, have relationships in your lives right now that are nearing the breaking point if they're not already there. Where you recognize, I cannot keep doing this. I cannot keep doing this relationship this way. It's so unhealthy. Something's got to give here. And guess what? It's probably, in most of those cases, I would bet, like Jesus here in Mark 6, it's probably the relationships that hit closest to home for you, isn't it? Because, A, if it wasn't, you'd probably have already cut ties earlier if it was a casual acquaintance. And B, because those people have more of a pull on our hearts, right? I mean, we're committed to that relationship. We want to make it work. But a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and in his own household. We know from John 7, 5 that Jesus' own brothers rejected him, his own family. Maybe this morning, you need to be given permission by God's word to at least begin to explore the possibility of cutting some ties with some really toxic people in your life. Someone who offers you nothing but criticism ever, destructive criticism all the time. Listen, friends, forgiveness is not the same thing as reconciliation. You need to hear that again. Some of y'all might want to write that down. Forgiveness is not the same thing as reconciliation. Forgiveness is a command from Jesus, but forgiving someone does not mean that you are called to continue on in a toxic relationship with them. In fact, if you have not seen genuine repentance from them, when you've been wronged, then healthy restoration of that relationship is not going to be possible. That's the, that's the harsh reality. And you may have to cut ties. That's hard. It might be the hardest thing that some of you have ever had to do is to cut someone who's really important to you out of your life. But you can't, I mean, because you love them, right? But you can't make them love you back. You can't make them stop hurting you. And you deserve better. You're a child of God. You deserve better. And finally, standing up to them and walking away might be the best thing you could ever do for you and for them. For both of you. Response number two to criticism is the cold shoulder. That's what Jesus does in Mark 8. Verses 11 to 13, we hear the Pharisees came and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. And he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, why does this generation seek a sign? Truly, I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And he left them, got into the boat again, and went to the other side. Now, interestingly, unlike his hometown of Nazareth, Jesus doesn't cut all ties here with the Pharisees, despite their destructive criticism. And we're going to see Jesus time and time again in the remaining five strategies for this morning, most of which are responses to criticism from these same Pharisees. Jesus keeps coming back to them time and time again. Why? Is it because God had appointed to actually save some of them, like Nicodemus? 
Is it because God had determined to harden their hearts so as to use them as his instruments of executing his divine plan of redemption through Christ's sacrificial atoning death on the cross? Is it because Jesus knew that you and I would have to deal with chronic criticizers throughout our entire lives as well and we don't always have the luxury of simply cutting ties and walking away from the relationship. The answer is yes, yes, and yes. It's all those reasons. And when it comes to the example that he set for you, when you might have to just, you know, mom's rule, if you don't have anything nice to say back, don't say anything at all, walk away, get in your boat, and go to the proverbial other side of the lake, one possible example, just trying to make this practical for us, very practical sermon. Maybe it's your boss, right? It's probably the easiest, most common example I could think of in this category. If we just cut ties with everyone who wasn't very good at offering us criticism, we would have an unemployment epidemic on our hands, wouldn't we? I can promise you, you would be out of pastor. That's another sermon for another day, how to give criticism well. We'll preach that one soon. (laughs) But the fact of the matter is, we can't and shouldn't always be cutting ties or we'd have no relationships at all, (laughs) right? Sometimes we're simply called to bear with one another, to overlook an offense, as Scripture says. Overlook another sinner's undue criticism. Like Jesus here, Don't you love Mark's description when the Pharisees ask for a sign after Jesus has been performing nothing but signs for seven straight chapters? Jesus just hangs his head, face palm, he sighed deeply in his spirit, and then he ignores them. He gets in his boat, he sails across to the other side of the lake because haters are going to hate. Shake it off, shake it off. Response number three to criticism is to confound. Mark chapter 11, verses 27 to 33. And they came again to Jerusalem, and as he was walking into the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him, and they said to him, by what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you this authority to do them? Jesus said to them, I will ask you a question. Answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven Or was it from man? Answer me. And they discussed it with one another, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Why then did you not believe him? But if we say from man, they were afraid of the people, for they all held that John was really a prophet. And so they answered, Jesus, we do not know. And Jesus said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. So the first two responses were ways of not answering a fool according to his folly. And these next five that we're going to examine, Jesus is going to show us different approaches for answering a fool, lest he be wise in his own eyes. And the first is to confound, confound the fool. We pick up right where we left off in Mark 11, after Jesus cursed the fig tree, cleansed the temple, and the chief priest did not receive that criticism well. Instead, they uh, uh, they rejected him and questioned him and seek, sought to undermine his authority in the eyes of the people. And so they challenge him in verse 28 and say, who exactly do you think you are, Jesus? 
pronouncing judgment on us, the educated, powerful, wealthy, religious elite, by what authority? What authority do you have? And see, they already know the answer to the question because Jesus told them back in John 5, 37, the Father has sent me and has himself borne witness about me. Jesus claims to operate within God the Father's authority. That's why they've already attempted to stone him back in John chapter 10, verse 33, for blasphemy, they say, because you being a man make yourself a God. He claims the Father's authority. And it's why they would ultimately crucify him in Mark 15. But Jesus knows his time has not yet come. And so when they challenge him here in chapter 11, he decides to engage them, but not to answer their question directly. Instead, he pulls the classic, let me answer your question with another question. And he stumps them with a doozy of a question about John the Baptist's authority to prove that they don't know the first thing about real authority. But moreover, to prove that not every question deserves an answer. Not every criticism deserves a direct response. Likewise, friends, you and I will face criticism where the best response isn't to walk away and ignore it, but nor is the best response to engage that criticism directly. Instead, Jesus here goes to the heart of the matter, their misunderstanding of the very nature of authority itself. He doesn't engage with what counselors sometimes call the presenting issue. Instead, he goes to the root issue, the thing behind the thing, right? I can share an example from our own extended family's dysfunction. We've got a toxic family member who we eventually did end up having to cut ties with, but who for years was hell-bent on pitting members of our extended family against one another. And at family holidays, she would make these subtle little jabs. She criticized Polly's grandmother. Say, I see you made the raspberry pie again this year that Polly loves so much. Must be nice to be the favorite grandchild. The pie, of course, there is just the presenting issue, right? Everyone else in the family likes the raspberry pie, but you. Uh, and nobody likes your gross rhubarb pie or whatever it is. <laughs> so this has nothing to do with pie. It has everything to do, as her comments make so blatantly apparent, with this, own, this person's own insecurities and jealousy and bitter resentfulness. Right? And so, but to engage in an argument about the pie would be at best short-sighted and unproductive. You can, but, but at the same time, you can only walk away from so many of those subtle comments, right, before the toxicity makes family holidays unbearable for everyone. So what do you do? You confound. You confound. To confound is to perplex or amaze, especially by a sudden disturbance or surprise. You want to disturb, surprise, and perplex everyone at the dinner table. Try responding with, gosh, aunt such and such. It sounds like um, you think Gran is playing favorites with her grandchildren. That's a pretty serious allegation. It sounds like you two might need to get together and, and talk through some things. That will stop a Thanksgiving conversation in its tracks. <laughs> Confounding is sort of that middle approach of not quite answering a fool in his folly, but not quite ignoring him altogether either. You just cut through the bull, and you go straight to the heart of the issue. 
And response number four is similar to that, and it's to critique. This is what we see Jesus do in Mark chapter 12, verses 13 through 17, to critique. It says, and they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. And they came and said to him, teacher, we know that you are true and you do not care about anyone's opinion. For you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? But knowing their hypocrisy, Jesus said to them, why do you put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought him one. And he said to them, whose likeness and inscription is on this? And they said to him, Caesar's. So Jesus said to them, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. And this time we hear explicitly in verse 13 that the Pharisees are trying to trap Jesus. And so this time Jesus' response is even more direct and even more confrontational. It says, verse 15, knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, why put me to the test? What if you were even more direct with aunt such and such? What if you directly critiqued her criticism and said, you know, aunt such and such, I don't think your comments are fair at all. And Gran spends all day in the kitchen cooking this delicious meal for all of us. And your response is to criticize her because you didn't get the gross pie that only you wanted? Some of y'all are, uh, we're laughing, but some of y'all are squirming, imagining this situation because you're envisioning the aunt such and such is in your life, around your family dinner table, around at your office place. You're imagining what you'd like to say to them, but the very idea of doing it, as I'm suggesting maybe you should, is about enough to make you wet your pants in church. Because you hate conflict. Any conflict avoiders in the room this morning, raise your hands proudly. Any Enneagram nines here, peacemakers, God love you. Blessed are the peacemakers, Jesus said. We need you in our lives. We need peacemakers at this church I keep having to remind myself not to feel too good about my sermons when I only receive two or three critiques, because that means there's at least another 20 or 30 peacemakers fuming silently at home about the same thing, right? <laughs> 10 conflict avoiders for every one of me who would just come tell me about it. Uh, it's not that I enjoy conflict, necessarily. I don't seek it out, usually. I, I just don't mind it. I really don't mind conflict. I know most of y'all that just raised your hand can't fathom that. But guess what? You conflict avoiders need us conflict tolerant people as well, don't you? My wife gets real grateful for me every time she has to call customer service and make a complaint, right? She's grateful uh, that she's not married to a fellow peacemaker at that point. Because without us, no one would stand up to the ant such and suches of the world. And they completely destroy our families, our companies, from the inside out. Conflict avoiders, whether it's natural to you or not, whether it's you know, part of your personality or the way God's wired you, listen, you are not doing that person any favors by letting them continue on in their sin. And that's what deconstructive criticism is. 
Let's just call a spade a spade this morning. If, if that criticism is issuing from an impure heart with an intent to tear down and to destroy, it is sin. And the best thing, the only right thing that you can do for that person, the loving thing, the biblical thing, is to confront them. Matthew 18, 15, Jesus says, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. And if he listens to you, you've gained your brother. Again, in Luke 17, 3, if your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. Reconciliation and healthy relationship isn't even possible, as I've already said, without repentance. And repentance isn't possible without knowing you've sinned and are in need of repentance. And sometimes we're so sinful, we don't even know when we've sinned. And we need others to help us see that, to see our blind spots, to point it out for us. Your sanctification, your becoming more like Jesus isn't possible without recognizing and humbly admitting that you have weak spots that you need to work on. And often recognizing that doesn't happen until others are willing to go to a difficult place and humbly and lovingly point it out to you the things that you miss so that you can grow. That's a gift that you can give someone to conflict well, to confront them. Conflict isn't inherently bad, people. Criticism, even, isn't inherently bad. Like I said in a previous sermon about other value neutral concepts like money, sex, power, criticism and conflict aren't inherently bad. It's all about how you use them. And so I appreciate the two or three of y'all who regularly provide me with constructive criticism after sermons. That makes me a better pastor. And likewise, I want to believe that God is going to use my naturally critical bent in my heart, to help grow many of you all spiritually, God willing, in the years to come in ways that you simply wouldn't and couldn't have grown if you decided instead to attend a church that was all about keeping it positive and the power of you, right? If that is the church that you're looking for, a church where you can be sure to leave every Sunday feeling really great about yourself, then I've got bad news for you here at West Hills. But if you are looking for a church that isn't afraid to challenge you to open the word of God for you and let it convict you about the sin in your own heart so that you can leave here more aware of your brokenness and just how in need of a savior you are and how richly God has graciously provided him for you, redemption for you, and the person and the work of Jesus Christ, how great and glorious he is that he would choose to love and adopt and accept a wretched sinner like you into his heavenly family, into his eternal kingdom. If that's the kind of church that you're looking for, then I think you'll find it here. I pray you'll find it here. I pray that God would make me that kind of pastor that would not be afraid to confront people in their sin. I'm not going to do you any favors if it's just the power of how great you are every week. Who's going to get better from that? The truth is we're all sinners and we all need critiquing. And Jesus not only critiques the Pharisees in Mark 12, he corrects them. They think they finally trapped him. 
If he says they should pay taxes, then the Jewish crowd will hate him as a Roman sympathizer. If he instructs them not to pay taxes, the Romans will kill him as an insurrectionist. But Jesus sets them straight. He says, render to Caesar what is Caesar's, to God what is God's. If Caesar wants to print his face on coins, go for it. Fine, he can keep them. Pay taxes. But you, whose image were you made in? You were made in the image and the likeness of God himself. God has set his inscription on your souls. (laughs) You owe your life, your whole existence, your whole being to God. He deserves it all from you. And Jesus does the very... Same thing in the very next passage, still in chapter 12, verses 18 through 27, with response number five. Response number five to criticism is to correct it. This time, Jesus is correcting the Sadducees. We hear, and the Sadducees came to him who say there is no resurrection. They asked him a question saying, teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife, but leaves no child, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers. The first took a wife. When he died, he left no offspring. The second took her and died, leaving no offspring. The third, likewise, all the way down. The seventh, leaving no offspring. Last of all, the woman also died. In the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife will she be? For the seven all had her as wife. And Jesus said to them, is this not the reason that you are wrong? Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses and the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. He is not God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. If there was any uh, unclarity there at the end. Jesus engages them in the most direct way of all here. He doesn't ignore them. He doesn't just confuse them and turn the tables. He goes beyond simply critiquing their question, and he actually answers them this time by correcting them in a very straightforward manner, this question about the resurrection. And he says in verse 24, you're wrong. There is no marriage in the resurrection. And oh yeah, verse 26, you're also wrong about there not being a resurrection. This was a big theological divide between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the two biggest denominations, if you will, of first century Judaism. Jesus says, for all their other problems, uh, at least the Pharisees got the resurrection right. There is a resurrection of the dead. And moreover, the reason the Sadducees got it wrong, verse 24, is that they know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. And so friends, when you encounter criticism that you need to confront, that you need to face head on, that has to be corrected, make sure that you're doing it with the word of God in the power of God. And that means correcting falsehood with the truth of the Bible under the loving direction of the Holy Spirit. That's how we help each other grow as believers. Ephesians 4.15, Paul says, it's by speaking the truth in love that we grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. It's not an either or, truth or love. It's a both and. It has to be a both and, uh, otherwise it doesn't work. As Warren Wiersbe says, truth without love is brutality, but love without truth is hypocrisy. 
neither in the absence of the other is edifying. And so when we correct others, confront others, we do it with truth in love. Response number six is to change the conversation. Still in chapter 12, verses 35 to 37, change the conversation. And as Jesus taught in the temple, we hear, he said, how can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself and the Holy Spirit declared, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord, so how is he his son? And the great throng heard him gladly. Jesus' opponents here think that they've had him on the defensive this whole time, but now Jesus turns the tables on them. He says, okay, guys, I've answered all your questions. Now I've got a few of my own. And he puts the ball in their court. He says, you're expecting a messianic king like David, but David calls the Christ his Lord. You ought to be expecting a different kind of king, a different kind of kingdom, a spiritual savior, an eternal kingdom. That's the kind of kingdom you need. That kind of kingdom is going to blow David's earthly reign and rule out of the water. So how do you all answer for this passage, this quote from David from the Psalms? Uh, Notice that I didn't say there, change the topic. Strategy number six is not to change the topic. The point here is not to avoid the criticism, the conflict. Jesus has taken it on, head on all in the same context. Chapters 11 and 12, it's all conflict and criticism from the scribes and Pharisees, right? Sadducees, all of them. He's not avoiding the conflict. He's changing the conversation. If someone's criticism is truly destructive like this, we shouldn't be content to just play defense. Sometimes the best course of action is to put them on the defensive, not in a way that's necessarily accusatory or attacking, returning evil for evil. That's not it. But to make them, force them to answer for their unfair criticism, for their contentiousness of their heart from which it issues. Here's a question to try. Try this out. Wow, you seem really upset about that. Why do you think that is? And what, what do you think it was about that little thing that I said or I did that sparked such a huge reaction from you? Maybe the conversation shouldn't be focused so much on me and on your criticism of me, but rather on you, on what's going on in your heart right now that is causing you to blow up in this destructive way. And again, we've got to be really careful with this. This is Jesus we're talking about. This is the disconnect. He's perfect. We're not. We should look for grains of truth. We should give the benefit of the doubt. But there may be circumstances, times, when someone really does need to be confronted about their own criticism and the way they're confronting you. And finally, response number seven is to condemn. To condemn. Mark chapter 12, verses 38 through 40. And in his teaching, Jesus said, Beware of the scribes 
who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces and have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts, who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers, they will receive the greater condemnation. And friends, this is where the, the parallel stops. This is where Jesus' example for us stops and where we come back full circle to the bookend that I mentioned at the beginning of the gospel because this is the one response to criticism that Jesus was justified in making. Romans 2, 1 through 11, we all stand rightly condemned by our own sin, stand justly, rightly under God's condemnation, and yet in our sin, we want to condemn others who wrong us, who criticize us unfairly, forgetting that judgment belongs to the Lord alone and that whatever hurtful thing she said to me, it pales in comparison to what I have said, what I have done to the Lord and what he has mercifully, undeservedly, graciously forgiven me of. condemnation that I rightfully deserve from him. I deserve, you deserve God's criticism, God's condemnation, and yet all we receive is acceptance and favor. That's the gospel. Praise God for it. Let's pray.